morning, everyone. My name is Will. I am uh, one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and we have uh, today and next uh, Sunday where we'll be uh, finishing up our series in the book of Revelation, and our passage today comes to us in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. And so if you are able, I want to invite you to, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this uh, as a sign of reverence, a way to continue to worship and practically help us to listen carefully to God's Word here today. Revelations 22, verses 1 to 5, please give your your undivided attention and hearts to the reading of his word. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God of the Lamb and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. There's a, a pastor who once told me when he gets stressed, and there's a little bit of friction in his marriage. His wife tells him, go out to the garden and just garden. You know, go out there and take your tools and begin to work on the garden in the backyard. And I guess it was therapeutic. And it was a way for him to decompress and to enjoy the abundance of a garden. Now, I'm not really into gardens. I know that a lot of people are, and that's absolutely wonderful. You could go to uh, gardens just in your backyard. You could go to the arboretums. You could go... Even on the East Coast, there's a theme park called Bush Gardens because gardens does convey a sense, if you think about it, of abundance, of life. There's vegetation, there's fruit, there's um, a natural order to the world, and it could be a moment of intimacy and peace. Even though I'm not really into gardens, the Bible in our passage today is so much into gardens. In fact, what Revelation 22 shows us you know, realize this, is trying to give us a clearer picture of the vision of heaven, but he adds this dimension of a garden. And to say, our future, our destiny as God's people, means that in heaven, not only will we have this strong city, this wonderful, beautiful city that lights up with the glory of God, but it's also going to be a wonderful, peaceful life of abundance in a garden. And so I want to look at and explore this garden with you today. Let's, get, let's talk about this. There are three aspects to this garden that we can see in Revelation 22. When you look at the garden, you'll see, one, there's a river that flows from it. Secondly, there's a tree in it. And thirdly, there's going to be a name for it. So we'll look at a river, a tree, and then a name. So let's look at this first. In this garden, there, there's a river. Verse 1 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal, it says, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, what you'll see throughout this passage, and even throughout Revelation, is that this is the end of the story, but it always looks back to the beginning of the story in Genesis. So in Genesis 2.10, they're saying, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So there's a river in the beginning of humanity, and there's a river at the end of humanity. What it tells us is that gardens are so important that even in the history of humankind, history of our reality, the story of humanity begins in a garden, and the end of humanity, the destiny of humanity, ends in a garden. And we see this with a river. There's a river in Genesis 1-3, and there's a river in the last chapter of the Bible. 
God will make the end like the beginning, but it's going to be even better. I think that's what John's trying to convey to us. That's what he's trying to tell us. The end will be like the beginning, but it's going to be better. Now, if you didn't know this, the metaphor for water is, very practically speaking, a metaphor for life. You need water to live. We can relate to this. It's not just modern people today, but the readers of Revelation understood that water was important back there. They didn't have um, plumbing. They didn't have a sewer system. So water is the key to life, and it's a metaphor for not just physical life, but in the Bible, what we call eternal life. Now, this is a vision of Ezekiel 47, which Revelation plays off of. It's even in that famous interaction between John, or rather, John writes about this interaction between Jesus and comes to this woman in John chapter 4, and he says to her, I'm going to give you the living water that will never dry out. And this woman's like, give me some of that water, and Jesus says, that water is going to be life with me. So water represents really eternal life. The living waters of eternal life in Revelation 22 flows from this throne and says it's going to come from God. So I want to I talk with you a bit, discuss a little bit with you um, the nature and the understanding of eternal life. Because if you've grown up in the church, you've been in the church, maybe you've had Christian family and friends that have passed, um, passed away from this world, that eternal life is deeply encouraging. But I think there's so much more to say about eternal life that you and I oftentimes think about. We think about eternal life as life that never ends. We think about the timing of eternal life. Eternal life that is something that goes on forever. But it's not really in the Bible. Did you know that in the Bible, eternal life is not first and foremost about the duration of life? Not the duration, but actually it's the quality of life, the quality, the kind of life. Think about it this way. You could have life, clinical, physical life that never ends, but it could be like as one, uh, this one pastor, Eric Raymond, says, a merry-go-round that goes forever, ever in a circle. Or it's like watching a movie where the credits never end. And that's going to be not really a fantastic life, but it could be torture. So it's not just about the duration of life. That's not what the Bible is trying to tell us. It can't just be a movie without credits. It's got to be more. There's questions about life that make life richer. Who will I live with? What's my purpose for living? Where will I live? Those questions aren't about the duration. It's about the kind of life, the quality of life. So even if you read some of the commentators or even in the dictionary, you look this up. One dictionary likes to call eternal life unending real life. Because it's trying to get you to a place of understanding eternal life that's so much deeper than just duration. Eternal life is not in the Bible about the quantity of life, how long it is. It's more about the quality of life, what kind of life it is. Let me try to explain that. Not just the duration of life, but it's going to be the kind of life. We, we understand this in, in this world today. Don't you say things like when you're on vacation or uh, maybe get a promotion at work or you look at people who really enjoy life, say, this life is really good. This is the good life. Now, we have an understanding of what that is. You can imagine living life by yourself, lonely and isolated, and being like that forever versus living life with a wonderful family. You could think about life with good friends and you have good conversations and there's mutual service and love and grace that saturates that community. That's going to be a better life, a qualitatively better life, the best kind of life. But what the Bible and what Revelation is trying to tell you is that this eternal life shown to us in water is a qualitatively better life, is a better kind of life because it's life with God. That's what Revelation is trying to tell us. The best life you can have 
is going to be life with God. Now, if you didn't know this, the Apostle John wrote Revelation. John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John also wrote the Gospel of John. And one of the things that John loves to talk about, especially in his Gospel, is going to be about life. And when you read John's Gospel, life is prominent for John in everywhere that he writes in his Gospel. It occurs actually more than 60 times in the Gospel of John. So when John talks about life given by God through Jesus, he says this is eternal life. John understands when he writes the gospel, he writes the gospel in the context of creation. That's why in Genesis 1, what are the beginning words? In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. What are the first verses in the gospel of John? Well, he's saying there's a recreation in the gospel. In the beginning was Jesus Christ. So John understands life. He understands eternal life. The context of his gospel is about life and creation. And it tells us in a deeper way what this eternal life is with God. It's eternal qualitatively better kind of life. Because if you know your story, Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, they had a taste of this life, communion with God, no sin. They were living, literally living in paradise. But when they finally sinned, then they got kicked out of the garden. They got kicked out of paradise, and they no longer had that eternal life, this eternal life which they had in communion with God. You see, for Adam and Eve, when they got kicked out of the garden, it's said in Genesis that they died. They didn't die physically, they died spiritually. That's why they didn't have eternal life. One commentator made this point, William Barclay, he says, they had, their unhindered fellowship with God was finally broken in their sin. They ate of that tree. They wanted to be autonomous. They experienced shame and alienation, receiving God's curse, and no longer God's blessing. True life, this eternal life that Jesus gives, means being restored in the state of fellowshipping, worshiping, knowing, talking to God, living with God in perfect harmony and bliss. That's the best kind of life. It means that we can enjoy our work, our marriages, our family. We can know God. We can experience community, a flourishing in the garden, experience all the joys and blessings of God in the garden. That's what eternal life is. That's why it's better. It's a better kind of life, qualitatively better. And this life can only come from God in union with Jesus. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, John says this, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That's the eternal, qualitatively better life. And the good news for us, friends, is that this eternal life flows abundantly from God himself. That's why in verse 2, notice the sort of geography as an urban planner. It says, verse 2, the river comes in the middle of the street. It's not in the back alleys. It's not the side street. It's not the neighborhood street. The middle of the street. Because the giving of eternal life is God's main business. It comes down the middle. It's basically the Fifth Avenue of New York. It's going to be basically Sunset Boulevard of Los Angeles. It'll be Market Street of San Francisco. It's the main street, all the hustle and bustle, the main flow from God on his throne. Do you know what? It comes to you and me, but it gives us this better life, this qualitatively better life. You and I can't live without water. You know, the New Testament people understood this. A poisoned well in the ancient world meant that people were going to die. So what it's telling us is that in our sin, we sort of have this spiritual dehydration. We have this as one pastor or commentator noted it, in our sin, we have this metaphorical cosmic dehydration, this cosmic thirst. And the only person who could fill that thirst to give you this better life is going to be God himself in the gospel of son, in union with Jesus Christ. The river points to God's basic providing 
for you and me. The water is crystal, the purest, it flows from God. So it tells us, this is hard pressing, before we go to our second point about the tree. It tells us, as good as this life is, which we could celebrate, as we could thank God, it pales in comparison to the life we have in you know Jesus, a life that you could have and experience now in the midst of hurt and suffering. As good as this life is, realize that it's so much lower than the life you can experience in a flourishing before God in your union with the son Jesus. And it flows. He wants to give it to you on the main street of this new city that's like a garden. But secondly, not only is in this garden there going to be a river that gives eternal life, but there's going to be a, a tree. Read with me verse 2. Also on either side of the river, so both sides of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I mean, this is a, a, wonderful, a wonderful picture of a tree. Now again, it's going to look back to the first garden in Genesis, but it's saying the ending will be like the beginning, but a little bit better. There's a reference to the beginning, but it's showing that the end is going to be so much richer, so much more abundant. Because after all, there was a tree in Eden, the tree of life, but it was only one tree. But here in this Garden of Revelation 22, there are at least two trees, but I think most likely it's going to be an abundance of, of a forest. Now think about this. The end is better than the beginning in this tree of life that we get to eat and participate in and to engage upon. It's again an allusion to Ezekiel 47 where there's this vision of a, a final heavenly garden. And in Ezekiel 47, the garden is not just one tree, but it's a forest of trees. And I think grammatically what John is writing in Revelation 22 is that it's really the, not just one tree on each side, but it's sort of a class of trees. It says there's only one type of tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. That's what it's saying. Now look at this tree of life. It's, it's not your normal sort of tree. This tree of life doesn't just bear one fruit, but it bears 12. Do you know any tree that could bear 12 fruits? Well, the tree of life does that because it's full of abundance. Twelve represents the abundance and the totality of God's people. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles, represents the church. And it says it's going to fill and feed the church in its entirety, its abundance. Not just one kind of fruit, but twelve. But you also look at this, and it says every month it'll bear twelve fruits. What kind of tree gives twelve fruits, but what kind of tree also does this every month? It doesn't come in seasons. You don't have to wait during winter. It comes every month. What kind of tree bears perfect, luscious, delicious fruit of a variety of different kinds every month. Well, the tree of life does. Twelve kinds of fruit, twelve months of the year, all year round. Twelve is a number, the symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles. It's a number, if you didn't realize this, of the company of people of God. So basically what John is saying is that this tree of life that gives us an experience of God, a better life, comes to us in the new creation of this tree of life abundantly given with abundant supply. All of God's people, his redeemed, will eat of this fruit of the tree of life, and the nations will find healing in its leaves, a healing from your sin, a healing from the curse, a healing from your brokenness. It's a picture, in other words, friends, it's a picture of fullness and abundance and sufficiency and intimacy in a way that you and I only get a glimpse of here. It tells us that this tree of life, because it's referenced not only in Genesis, but also Revelation 2. Revelation 2 says, to him who overcomes this world, overcomes your sin in Jesus Christ, this person, 
gets to eat of the tree. That salvation comes in Jesus, and those who belong to Jesus will overcome. And in consummation, when this picture comes down, it's a greater blessedness than Adam knew before the fall. We get to eat of this tree to those who overcome. Adam had an experience that you and I can't even imagine when he was created in perfection before sin entered the world. But John is saying this picture here is not just one tree. It's going to be a consummate forest of trees, and there's only one type of tree. It's a tree of life. And given to the 12 apostles and 12 tribes of Israel, to those who overcome in Christ, no more cure, no more, no more curse, but only a cure. The Eden of Revelation 22, what I'm trying to say, is greater, more glorious, more abundant than the Eden of Genesis chapter 2. The garden in Revelation 22 is so much more beautiful and abundant than the garden in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2. The reality of the world that is to come is going to surpass the reality of the world that we lost in Adam's sin. And we all in Jesus Christ have access to this garden, to eat of this tree. In some ways, this is the answer to all of mankind's life because mankind in our, whether you're a Christian or not, you're looking for happiness, you're looking for satisfaction, you're looking a way to get into paradise because the word garden is also translated paradise. That's why the message is called the paradise of God. Everybody wants to go to paradise. You want no more pain, no more tears, no more hurt. You want the curse to be gone away. This curse that says relationships are broken, I'm broken, marriages are broken, parenting is broken, work is great but doesn't satisfy, money is good but doesn't satisfy, I feel depressed, there's mental health issues. You want to go through all of that and get out of all of that so you can get into paradise. And the way that we're naturally built and wired is that we want to get into paradise through our own works. Isn't that the case? We try to earn our way in, try to merit our way in. We try to procure and manufacture and manicure a certain image of ourselves so that we could get into paradise. You know, that's what the world teaches us. But here it's saying this paradise that answers the deepest need of mankind is something far better than any other religion, any other philosophical system, any worldview can offer you. Because you don't have to earn it, you receive it. Everyone else says you want to get into paradise, you got to be good enough. Good enough in your credentials, good enough in your morality, Every other religion in some version has that approach to paradise. You got to earn it. You got to do it yourself. You got to merit this. You got to be good enough. You have to have a family that's big enough. You have to have morality that's big enough. You got to make sure you don't sin enough. But Christianity says this vision of paradise is so much bigger than the world has to offer, any other religion has to offer. And the great news is you don't have to earn it, but you got to receive it. You got to believe in Jesus, and he'll give it to you. See, one missionary describe the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, trying to highlight this in the sense of some people try to earn paradise. Christianity says you receive paradise, and this missionary described the entire Bible story from Genesis to Revelation in this way. He says there's paradise in the beginning and paradise at the end, but the end is much better than the beginning. But when you think about it, sort of tongue-in-cheek, in the garden, Adam, he had it all. But when he ate of the tree and he sinned, he lost it all. So that the second Adam, Jesus, had to come to fix it all so that you and I, by believing in Jesus, can receive it all. Does that make sense? Adam had it all. He lost it all. Jesus fixed it all so that you and I could receive it all. But in our hearts that were sort of autonomous and works-oriented, what we try to live out functionally is this different paradigm where we say, okay, Adam in the garden, he had a lot. No, but he didn't have all. 
And so that when he sinned, he lost a lot, but he didn't lose all. So that Jesus in his death and resurrection, yeah, he did a lot, but he didn't do all. So that if we believe in Jesus, we get a lot, but we don't receive all. There's a little bit more that I can contribute. And that approach is basically encapsulating every other system and every other approach to life in paradise. Yeah, maybe this God did a lot, but I still contribute, so I earn it, I deserve it, I merit it, I feel good about myself. And that approach, friends, will always drive you into the ground. Because Adam had it all, he lost it all, Jesus fixed it all, and we receive it all by faith in him. We have all the healing of Revelation 5.9. The leaves are healing of this tree. And healing in Revelation 5.9 basically says Jesus was slain on behalf of his church, the believing nations were freed from sin, were freed from wrath. There's a hope that we have that the world can't give you, and that's the healing of the leaves of this tree. Christ suffered in the present world so that the nation wouldn't have to suffer in the world to come. Now, you can even think about it in terms of understanding this tree that in some ways Adam had the tree of life and he lost it. Jesus hung on a tree of death so that you can finally get the tree of life back. That's how you could understand all the story of Genesis and Christianity. Adam had the tree of life, but he can no longer eat it. Jesus had to taste death because he hung on a tree of death so that he could ultimately give you the permission to eat of the tree of life. You want to taste the tree of life? That's in your union with Jesus. I don't know if it's going to be literal in heaven. I think it's probably metaphorical. But the tree of life represents the goal and destiny of all humankind. It was given to Adam perfection. Adam in his sin, he gave it up. Jesus didn't get to eat of the tree of life. He hung and climbed on the tree of death on the cross of Jesus at Calvary so that what we receive in all his goodness and grace is the ability to eat of this tree of life, and we get a taste of that here today. How do we taste the tree of life? In our union with Christ, by fellowshipping with God and receiving from him, learning from him, receiving forgiveness, fellowshipping with him and one another, then we get a taste of those 12 fruits. That's the tree. So we see that there's a river, and now we see that there's a tree. But let's look at the last thing. There's also, there's also going to be a name and there's a face. Read with me verse 4. Verse 4 says, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, it's interesting. It says later on in verse 5, the citizens of the city of God have God's name on them. So if you're a believer, it's saying, well, you'll have a name tag, and it will be God's name on you. This is what a name does. It says, his name will be on their foreheads. A name is identity, isn't it? If you're named, then you know who you are. One of life's greatest questions, who am I? What am I about? Well, God says, I name you. I'm going to identify you. I'll give you, I'll give you an identity. But names also tell you that there's a, there's a place and a mission. You know, you belong to God. You're on God's mission. You're a child of the king. You're his. You belong to God. God belongs to you. You're loved. You're accepted by him. Therefore, you know who you are. A name gives you identity. It gives you a purpose in life, a mission, a reason for being. And it says there when it talks about names on our foreheads that we're now owned by God, that our words and our actions, even today, should reflect the character of God. That's what a name really tells us. It, it's an identity of God's children. We're the chosen people of God. Our reason for being, our mission, our identity, our sense of worth. And it says those people, like you and I, who have God's name on us, on our foreheads, then we finally get to see God's face 
God's person face to face. Now, throughout the old Bible, you get glimpses of God. Moses got a glimpse of God and says, no, let me see you face to face. But God said to Moses, no, you can't see my face because I'm too pure and holy. Uh, you're basically going to die. So God just shows him his back. That's all he got. Just showed the back of God walking away. Now, everybody like, on a human level, you get this. You want to get a glimpse of somebody famous. Isn't that true? Especially in California and L.A. and Hollywood. If there's somebody that's famous movie star, author, sports athlete, if you hear that somebody's there, you're going to rush over to see, you want to get a glimpse of somebody's face. You want to see somebody face-to-face, not just on TV. I don't know if this is true, but I once read Michael Jordan. You know, everybody knows who he is. Michael Jordan says that, I'm always going to look polished and perfect whenever I'm out in public. Whether I'm going to have sunglasses and a perfect suit, I'm going to have new clothes, new shoes, I'm going to look perfect, perfectly groomed. And now I know it sounds a little bit arrogant, but the reason in this interview he said he wanted to do this is because I have to hold up this image because that one fan who gets a once-in-a-life chance to see me face-to-face, I don't want to disappoint him. i got to look perfect for him. And that's our culture. We want to be like that. We want to see things face-to-face. We want to see famous, important people face-to-face. And Revelation 22 says those people who have God's name on us, we get to see them face-to-face. Probably what John's thinking about the most is going to be this wonderful, well-known passage in number 6, 25 to 27. It's the, uh, the benediction of Aaron, and it reads like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, his face upon you, and give you peace. Because whenever God's face is shown to you, it brings peace and it brings preservation. And number six says the Lord, he turns to you, makes his face shine upon you, his countenance upon you. And we find the fulfillment of this in Revelation 22, because once we're finally in heaven, we're going to see God face to face. It's the apex of of intimacy and joy, the name of God written on our foreheads applied to everyone now. Number six finds its fullest expression in the garden of Revelation 22, consummate peace, consummate preservation. Now, I'm not really big on gardens, you know, I already said that, but I I get the enjoyment of it. I visit some here and there. Uh, They're wonderful, but as I said in the beginning, God in the Bible is really big on gardens, and this is why. Obviously, there's a garden of Eden in Genesis 1 to 3. The ending of humanity ends in a garden in Revelation 22. But if you know this, Jesus also had his experiences with two gardens. He had the garden of Gethsemane, where his experience was so different from what we think garden experiences should be like. In the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Jesus had almost an anti-garden experience. He was full of anguish. He was about to die on the cross. There is suffering. There's betrayal. There's arrest. And there's violence. Jesus had a taste of torment and hell when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was about to die on the cross. It was sort of a picture of a garden, but it was an anti-garden experience. But then this led to the garden of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. And then John 19, 41 This is what we see in this resurrection. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
So Jesus suffered the Garden of Gethsemane in turmoil and betrayal and violence and arrest. He suffered that so that he could be raised again, die on the cross in the resurrection garden. Even in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene thought Jesus was a gardener. So the garden is very important, and this is the point. Jesus, he passed through the garden. He suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane for sinners like you and me so that he could give us the Easter garden of his resurrection in John chapter 20. The Easter garden brings a sense of joy and intimacy. That's what the garden motif, that's the point of this, to say the garden is a place of happiness, of satisfaction, of total abundance, that you have plenty to eat and drink, plenty of 12 fruits and plenty to drink in the eternal life of the river that runs down the main street. Jesus suffered the garden of Gethsemane to give you the resurrection garden of Easter, the garden that we see in the fullest expression of Revelation 22. Because Adam started life in the garden, he lost that paradise. In order to gain it back for you and me, Jesus had to suffer in anguish in the garden of Gethsemane so that in power he was raised again three days later, even to be mistaken as a gardener, and to say this is the Easter resurrection garden, garden given to you by grace in a place that is our destiny and our home, a place that will find full satisfaction, a place that we could have our hopes. Let me try to apply this as we come to a close. Some of us have lost family members and friends, whether from illnesses, maybe from COVID, but my prayer is that this vision for you will give you at least a little bit of more hope on this side of glory to say there's a garden of perfection waiting for you in bliss, of abundance. I read this article recently written towards the end of 2021. It's an author that I've been following a little bit more. Uh, she's an Anglican priest, Tish Warren, and she wrote in the New York Times an article called What I Believe About Life After Death. And I think she's a wonderful writer, and she's talking about friends and also her dad that she has lost and the nature and experience of what that death was like, and trying to connect it to the death and resurrection of Jesus that will lead us to the garden. Now, just to give a sense of this, she says that death for all of us, in her understanding, feels like a journey that's been interrupted. She says, I felt this acutely when someone young dies. When someone young passes away, you think it was a journey interrupted. There's life to live, marriages to be had, parenting to be done, places to visit, restaurants to eat museums to, to frequent. So it's a journey of life that seems got cut short. But even for her father, she said, he passed away after a full life in his 70s, but there was so much more that she still felt that he wanted to do. More conversations to be had with him. Places that he had to visit, like the Panama Canal. There are grandchildren in his future that needed him to be alive. But death took him, and it felt like it was a journey interrupted. And she says, I, I, I think it's Interesting that maybe Jesus' own death felt like that too for the disciples. Now place yourself into the disciples' experience. Jesus' death too feels like a journey interrupted for them. There's so much more that he could have explained, so much more that he could have taught, so many more people he could have healed, so much more that had to be done. Now if you imagine this, after Jesus' death on the cross, the disciples and his closest friends, they were scared. They, lost, they were lost in grief. They hid out. And I wonder if this was in part because they thought, this isn't what it was supposed to be. Jesus was supposed to do more, but his journey got interrupted. They had plans. There was going to be a revolution. There was going to be a brotherhood of apostles, and suddenly it was all over. 
And if you can imagine the experience of the disciples, you're in grief and you're lost, a journey interrupted, then three days later, all of a sudden, the man that you love so much appears once again. And how do you process that in your grief? How would it feel to be in the deepest grief and then suddenly see your best friend? And he starts to glow because he's in his resurrection body. There is a deeply intimate and human reunion story in the resurrection of Jesus in the Easter garden. Larger, cosmic level reunion that can only happen in the resurrection account. A community of friends and brothers, broken and devastated, ravaged by the journey interrupted of death. But all of a sudden, again, remade, full of hope because of the resurrection of Jesus given to you. That's our hope that we have here today, friends. That's what we got. There is pain and there is hurt on this side of glory with death in ways that you have experienced in ways that I have not. But it is a journey interrupted for those who believe in Christ because we'll be reunited with those who are believers in Jesus on that day we get to enter into the garden and fellowship with Christ. You know, when I was younger, one of the things I always did, and I grew up in all kinds of different places, Utah, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and there's always a park that was nearby, and I would always play there with my older brother and sister. I love going to the park, getting nauseous on the swings as we try to push each other as high as it could go, going on the seesaw, going up and down as fast as we could be, the merry-go-round until we could spin as fast as it could go. And I would think on the merry-go-rounds are spinning, I'm about to throw up, but this is fantastic. Going to the park. The word for garden translated paradise, but there's also a root Persian word of the Greek word for garden, and that Persian expression is a park. And if I could be as bold as to imagine, saying for all of us who are hurting and suffering, but those who will overcome in Jesus, Jesus is telling us through his word, I'm waiting for you to come join me. Let's go eat of the tree of life. I'll meet you in the park. I'll see you there. No more pain. No more hurt. No more tears. I'll meet you in the park. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the, the goodness and the grace that you give us. Thank you for this vision that we have, but it's a, a real vision that we could taste here today. The eternal life of the river in our union with Christ, the experience of fellowshipping with you, Heavenly Father, through your Son, of this tree of life to be able to look forward to the day we see you face to face as you own us and identify us with the name and that we could be there in the garden in abundance and peace and prosperity, purchased and earned for us because Jesus suffered in his death in the Garden of Gethsemane and rose again to give us the Easter garden of his resurrection. We thank you so much for this truth. Pray that it would resonate with us and touch our hearts so that we could live and become the people of God. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.